Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit magnagrip.com. This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, Comfortable and powered with the strength of Enforce technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit TenkataFabrics.com slash Flex 7. Flex 7, powered by Enforce technology, only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to the Women in Fire radio show. Today we will be discussing how to help your communities plan in the event of an emergency. Thank you to Fire Engineering for allowing Women in Fire to be a part of their radio show. I am Lisa Baker and I'm the Southwestern Trustee for Women in Fire. Today I have two guests that are both from the Forest Park, Georgia Fire Department. I have Fire Chief Latasha Clemens, and then I have Ioana Armstrong, who is the Emergency Management Coordinator. Welcome, and I thank both of you for joining me today. Um, Thank you for having us. Okay. So the key to being prepared for a disaster is to have a plan in place before an emergency arrives. Preparing in advance by learning about the community's warning systems, evacuation routes, and making evacuation plans and discussing them is the best way to be ready. Communities and individuals can work together to improve preparedness and respond to disasters and emergencies. Depending on, one where, depending on where one lives, different types of disasters can affect your area. For instance, tornado, tornadoes are less likely to strike in certain parts of the country and hurricanes aren't likely to strike in other parts. This doesn't mean you are free from risk from adverse weather. Many disasters can be interconnected as well. Types of disasters that can affect your area are a hurricane, a tornado, a flood, an earthquake, a hazardous material release, and many others that we will discuss today. Being prepared can reduce fear, anxiety, and losses that accompany disasters. Communities, families, and individuals should know what to do in the event of a fire, and where to seek shelter during a powerful storm. They should be ready to evacuate their homes and take refuge in public shelters and know how to care for the, their basic medical needs. So a lot of times we hear about 72 hours, or the community should be prepared to be self-sustainable for 72 hours, which we know is three days after a major disaster that hits a community. Some community refer this as having a 72-hour kit. What are the basic disaster supplies that one should have in place? And would, depending on where you live, the um, supplies be different or would they be the same? Well, thank you for that question, Chief Baker. I'm sure that our EMA coordinator will chime in at any time. But uh, some of the basic supplies is, can be as, just as simple as having the right amount of food 
uh, canned good foods uh, in the event that uh, the stores are closed down. Uh, maybe some gas cans and flashlights and batteries. Uh, these are some of the basic um, items that are needed for any emergency uh, event that your community may encounter. Uh, I'm sure the um, emergency manager coordinator will chime in and add some other. Yes, um, just like Chief said, basic canned um, canned goods, canned food, and then you definitely want to think about water. So when we when we want to have water on hand, about one gallon per person per day is, is what we try to um, stress to everybody to have. She mentioned batteries. You also want to have some extra cell phone batteries or chargers, um, and then even something as simple as a whistle so that you can signal for help. Um, a if you have the ability to get a weather radio to get some alerts on that, that's uh, battery powered in case you don't have access to other communication. And then a can opener for those canned goods. Those are just some of the basics. So when once the um, our communities or our citizens have put together this 72 hour kit, um, is, do we, we recommend that they check it regularly or do we just put it together and just leave it there and don't worry about it till we may need it? Definitely. After assembling your kit, you want to remember to to maintain it so that it's ready um, when you need it. And that that means you want to keep the canned food in a cool, dry place, store box food and tightly closed containers like plastic or metal containers. Um, and then you want to go through it every once in a while and replace expired items as needed. So, and then every year you and your family can change the needs will change. So you just want to go through and update it as, as you see fit. You know, just to add to that, you know, some additional items, you know, you may need something as simple as a backpack, uh, an emergency kit in the event that you cut your finger, cut your toe, uh, emergency radios, uh, I, I meant first aid kits. Uh, something as simple as even sleeping gear. What if something happens? You're going to need sleeping gear. And then hand sanitizer, disinfecting wipes, things that you can use that if you don't have running water um, to, you know, be able to clean um, a, a warm blanket for each person, possibly, or a sleeping bag, changes of clothing and, you know, feminine supplies, personal hygiene items or things that we don't think about. But when you need them and if you have uh, little kids or children, you want to think about formula, diapers, um, baby wipes and that kind of stuff. So. I know in California, earthquakes are um, happen quite regularly. And I know it's I believe it's the American Red Cross that has kits that you could buy at like a hardware store that have earthquake supplies in them. Such as um, like how to uh, wrench to shut off your power and water and and such. Um, Do you recommend that every citizen has the ability to shut off their own gas and water or if it's not? If it's just like something that's not an earthquake or it could cause a fire or something that the community should just leave that to the professionals. I would say it's situation dependent in that because every community is different and what they what some communities have, others may not. Um, But if you if you do choose to have a wrench like that to turn off your utilities. You want to make sure that it's a non-sparking wrench, whatever you do, because you don't want to add to any hazards that may be happening at that time. Um, but if, if 
If you can, I would leave it to the professionals, but it's also something that every citizen citizen should know where that's at at their home and how to do so should they need to and and listen to alerts and, and the local officials and go by what they're saying. If they tell you that that's what they need the citizens to do, then they can have the ability to do that. Just this past December, uh, the city of Forest Park went through its first uh, emergency management crisis in quite some time. Uh, the entire city went without water. The entire city went without water. All the pipes were frozen, things of that nature. Uh, so it's always recommended that um, folks that are in their own residence maybe slightly turn the valve as a little drip in the event to kind of release some of the pressure off of the uh, the frozen pipes. Uh, we just went through that crisis here in the city of Forest Park. And what would it last about two, three days, about three, four days? Uh, almost a week. Park? Yes, ma'am. Almost a week. Hmm. Yeah, I've actually seen that in certain areas where it's going to be freezing, where areas don't normally get freezing weather like that, that they recommend you uh, wrap your outside pipes and then to what Chief just said, release the, um, a little bit of water for the dripping. Um, thank you for sharing what should be in a kit, because a lot of that I really hadn't even thought of personally. <laughs> so how do you educate the communities on the different types of emergency that they may face? Like some disasters, you're going to have a warning that may affect mm -hmm. your community, like a hurricane. I mean, sometimes on the news, they'll show a hurricane is going to hit in one area and that area gets really prepared and the hurricane turns and doesn't hit that area. And some you do not know that will affect the community, like in California, wildfires or earthquakes can happen at any moment. So is the preparation the same, like as far as educating the community, or is the preparation a little different? I'd say generally the preparation is the same because an emergency uh, crisis is an emergency crisis. And you're going to leave you're going to require and need some of those essential uh, supplies and things of that nature that we just spoke about. You're also going to take um, similar safety mes safety measures. However, with the different emergencies, whether it's a hurricane or a tornado, a flood, uh, those things, they're they're going to take maybe uh, a, 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 a similar but separate scenario. And I'll let the EMA kind of add in on how she prepares our community. I agree. I agree with Chief. Um, when we talk about preparation, we're essentially, we're talking about planning ahead. And so when you're planning ahead, we want to um, just keep a couple things in mind. So one of the most important things is to know your risks, know, you know, communities, they face many types of hazards. And it's, it's vital to learn the risks specific to your community. And then you might ask yourself, well, how do we learn these risks? How do we learn what our risks are? Uh, a good way to do that is to visit your state and local government's emergency management websites. They tend to have um, a lot of information listed and resources available to learn what specifically um, could happen in your area. And if it's available, Sign up to receive um, community alert and warning messages. Those are those are key in getting uh, the word out. And then then you want to make a plan and you want to make a plan that's unique to your family and and keeping those in, you know, those thoughts in mind. And you want to make plans both for evacuating and for for sheltering in place, because those are two different plans. So you want to kind of think of all these things um, when you're preparing. Yes, but like I, Chief said. So go ahead. I'm sorry, one. I was just going to say, like, like Chief said, when you're when you're for all these events or, or emergencies, a lot of the preparation is the same because a lot of the hazards associated with them 
could take plus place, whether it was a tornado that went through or whether it was a hurricane that led to flooding or that led to, you know, some other event. They they have the same outcomes, whether it's a power outage or uh, debris is all over the place, uh, no water or stagnant water. So a lot of those um, kind of go hand in hand. So just overall preparation and knowing what the risk could be. I think that that's how we help prepare. Yeah. Another emergency I'm sure we're going to uh, tackle is, you know, active shooter. Um, mm-hmm. That's an, another event that we must prepare for. And that may require you, you know, going in lockdown mode. Uh, so that's, you know, it just depends on the uh, the emergency that we're facing. But typically uh, your preparation is pretty similar. Okay. And you, you mentioned something um, that was real interesting uh, or real important when you said the difference between evacuating and shelter in place. I know, um, especially in California, when we get the wildfires, it oftentimes starts small and escalate very quickly. Um, communities in certain neighborhoods are told to evacuate and they chose they choose not to evacuate. They choose either to not listen to the warning or they choose to stay back to protect their own property. And I think um, how do we instill in our communities that if the sheriff, police, fire department is telling you to evacuate, they're telling you for your own safety because then it becomes a safety issue for the, the first responders as well as the citizens because now the resources are taken away to go rescue people that would not needed to be rescued if they had evacuated when they were told to evacuate. And I'm, I'm pretty sure in California, you can't force someone to evacuate. I could be wrong on that, but I know a few years ago, I remember hearing that you can't force someone to evacuate. I think initially, just like, um, we've discussed and like anything else, a lot of it is just planning, preparation, and of course, education, Mm -hmm. Uh, education, enlightenment. And then when necessary, that's where the enforcement comes into place. Um, But that all depends on your local jurisdiction, the laws, the federal laws, local laws, state and federal. Um, But the big thing, the big uh, part of this is educating them on all the type of emergency that may happen in your area. Uh, so that they are prepared and understand the importance, the dynamics and the variations of the different types of emergencies. Um, you know, I wouldn't say you have to instill a little fear factor, but you have to be real about the events that may take place. And you just made a good point um, about the emergencies that may happen in your area. And that kind of goes into our next question is um, when there's major flooding, we hear the slogan. Uh, turn around, don't drown. And some people think that's a really cute slogan, but there's a reason for it. So how do we instill in the community the importance of not driving in flooded water? And I say I say that for California was in severe drought, especially the Northern California area. And this past year, we got copious amounts of rain where streets actually flooded, where people did think they could drive through. And they probably never thought that we would see the amount of flooding on city streets and city highways and such. There was a stretch of highway in Oakland that was closed for two, three days because of flooding. So we hear the slogan, turn around, don't drown. And and some people think it, I mean, would never apply to them. It applies to, you know, you think of where they get flooding, see on the news where cars are trying to drive through the flooding. Um, The Houston area comes to mind for me where when they get copious amounts of rain, there's areas that are, going to flood and everybody knows they're going to flood. So their citizens are probably a little more, you would hope on top of the 
turn around, don't drown. But I know in California, when it happened, you saw numerous cars trying to drive through flooded water. And I don't under, I don't think people really understand the severity of trying to drive through water that's, you know, three, four feet deep. Um, so how do we instill in them of that the importance of not driving in flooded water? Because as if this should have been a wake up call to everyone that anywhere they could get flooding. Did we lose her? Hmm? You, you froze, Lise. Are you there, Awana? I'm here. Can you hear me? I don't think Yolanda's there. I can hear you, Chief. Can you hear me? So I think you you said it right. The first 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 part of that is we have to understand and know our own flood zones and our own community as first responders. Uh, once we identify those flood zones, it's up to us to educate the community. Um, in addition to that, we may have to learn, practice, you know, all those evacuation routes. We have to understand the uh, uh, flood response plan. And with that being said, we have to educate the community. A lot of this stuff with emergency management is about transparent communication and education. It really is. And with the education portion, um, you know, it's just getting out there and explaining to them that it doesn't have to be a lot of water to do some damage as far as that. Uh, six inches of moving water can knock a person off of their feet. One foot of water is enough to carry your entire car off the road. So that doesn't have to be three, five, six feet or to look like flooding for it to be a true danger. Um the moving water, it can even wash away bridges. That's how strong and powerful moving water can be. So it's just getting out there and truly explaining to them why that slogan um, exists and why we say it, because it really doesn't take a lot. And, and I, you know, I agree with that, Chief Baker, you know. Identifying your weak infrastructures in your city, I think the community needs to know that where are those weak infrastructures? Talk to them about electricity supplies things of that nature. It, it, it matters. You step in that puddle of water, you create a hazard for yourself. Yeah. So we kind of got into this a little bit ago, but like severe weather, as we know, can happen anytime. Thunderstorms, high winds, large hail, flooding and flash flooding, as well as severe snow snowstorms. And we we discussed that communities really don't need to prepare for each type of incidents separately, but when we activate the EOCs in cities or counties, what, I guess the question is, what is the basics of when you activate them? I mean, I'm sure you activated it when you were out, when you went without the water because it was probably a citywide coordination. So, I mean, we could get um, this large hail. And I, I mean, that, does that mean we're going to activate the EOC? I guess I don't, I don't think that, a lot of communities really understand what the EOC is. They hear the term, the EOC has been activated and they don't really understand what that entails or what it means. Uh, again, education. Um, we have to educate them 
on the different uh, activation EOC levels. You know, we have to we have to prepare them and educate them on. It depends on the size, scope, complexity. It depends on the incident. Um, and also, you know, when we're watching the weather, we're listening to and 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 and, val- and gathering information on the, from the county. And then the county's probably gathering information from, you know, GEMA, Georgia Emergency Management. Awana? A lot of the education portion with the, you know, activation with the EOC, uh, as we mentioned, it can happen for disasters, but it it also can happen for planned events. So the, the biggest thing when you're educating your community is to explain what the EOC does and the different types of um, events or incidents that it would be activated because you don't want to instill any kind of fear if they hear the EOC is activated, then everyone's, you know, worried like, oh no, this must be, must be big and bad at the EOC because the EOC can get, get activated for numerous reasons. So when you just, you come across and you educate of, it could be open for an emergency, but it can also be opened just to, you know, make sure an event gets, um, goes off and, and everything is planned and, and coordinated and nothing bad happens. So a lot of that is just talking to them and explaining to them what the EOC does. And I think that's huge. You want to, um, a few years ago, in my uh, previous department, the EOC was getting activated quite a bit for um, civil unrest. And some days it was a full activation. Other days it was a partial activation. But the location of the EOC was downtown at a fire station and the community would see, you know, sheriff's cars, police mm-hmm. cars, highway patrols and such there. And uh, a, a lot because they saw it, they thought something bad obviously was going to happen. So mm-hmm. the education part needed to really get out there that, hey, this is to prevent things from happening. And that's why we're here. You know, we're trying to prevent anything from going wrong with this planned event. Right. So power outages are now something that are a lot more common, um, especially in California, and can leave communities without power for extended periods of time. Sometimes they're planned uh, power outages and sometimes they are not planned. So how do communities need to be educated on the power out, uh, power outages, such as having generators, um Certain areas I know in California, when we have the planned um, power outages are exempt from them, like hospitals and such, because obviously they need power for their medical equipment and such. But we don't think of, I think some citizens don't understand that reasoning or, and they just want to go out and run out and buy a generator. How do we, how do we make our communities understand why maybe we do have planned power outages and if they really need a generator or not to have a generator. And if they do have a generator, how to properly operate the generator and such. Well, once again, preparation planning for, for an event like this, it's crucial. Um, so then you ask yourself, how do you prepare for whether it's planned or unplanned? Um, just start by taking an inventory of the items that you, that you need that rely on electricity and then start making a backup plan for those items. Um, whether that's going out and getting batteries or other alternatives like a generator, um, 
to help meet your needs when the power goes out. Um, installing battery powered smoke detectors and carbon monoxide detectors. And then you want to have, you know, make sure that if you're using um, for lighting that you're using flashlights, you know, we want to try to avoid using candles because that could be a fire hazard um, or keep your get uh, your car's gas tank full. So because a lot of times you'll use your car to charge devices, but you don't want to have it running in your garage and you don't want to have um uh, or anywhere where it's a sealed space. So with the generator use, we talk about carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, and that just goes back to educating them to keep it 20 feet away from windows, you know, just proper usage, not an enclosed space. Make sure your detectors are working and, um, and even signs and symptoms of what could be carbon monoxide poisoning just goes back to educating. And then in preparation for outages, you know, you want to make sure you keep your important phone numbers uh, in a safe spot. Um, you know, keep a cell phone with you. As uh, EMA said, keep a flashlight, you know, maybe notify your alarm company, uh, keep your perishable foods, you know, protect your sensitive electronic equipment if you can, uh, things of that nature. All of these are preparation for uh, power outages. Uh, it helps to have a generator. Um, but in the event that you don't, you know, you want to keep your food cold, your food cold, uh, make sure you're keeping your fridge cold, you know, you know, prevent yourself from going in and out of it to the sustainability of your food. Mm-hmm. And and that's good because I think it's probably been three years now since where California started having planned power outages and the local electric company, they did actually do a very good job of educating the public on, like you just said, you want about the uh, ed, the generators and such and having the fully powered, um, uh, I'm fully, the car being full of gas, excuse me. And uh, they even mentioned like having fully powered cell phones and they talked about, um, you know, not to barbecue not to bring a barbecue like into your garage to leave the door open to keep your house warm and that such. So they did do actually a really good job with educating about the planned power outages. And as the years or months went on, they actually got even better with saying these areas will actually be the ones that will be blacked out for any, for this amount of time. So we kind of uh, talked about this a minute ago, but sometimes the community will face an unexpected emergency, like a chemical spill or the, like the drinking water needs to be boiled or not to be used due to contamination of the water system, or like you guys mentioned, the freezing of the water system. These can happen fairly suddenly. How do you get the message out to the communities of such an event? Like with your water, um, how did you get the message out that I'm sure people tried to turn their water on and realize there was no water, but let's say the water did work, but it got contaminated. How would you get that message out for people to either boil it or not to even use it? Well, for immediate notification, uh, we use our alert and warning system, which is code red. And that's how we'll send emergency notification and alerts. Um, and after that, we'd, we'd also be working with our city's PIO and uh, to help distribute that information across all the various different media outlets, whether that's social media, the radio or news or press releases. Um, and then we also provide a summary of, of whatever's happening to our state and our local EMAs through something it's called the WebEOC. It's a platform that we'll use. And that basically provides the state and the local EMAs uh, situational awareness of what's going on. And it lets them know if there's any needs from, from the EMA that's involved in the incident. So it's just a good um, 
platform to share information and needs and resource requests. So you mentioned like distributed through the media outlets and the PIO and such. So how do we reach the underserved communities, members of our community that might not have a television or might not have the Internet or such? We do have five weather sirens that are placed throughout the city, and that can alert individuals um, if they need to take cover from, let's say, an incoming tornado. Um, it also does have it has a general emergency alarm, but we haven't used that one. We tried to steer clear from using that unless it's a true emergency other than testing it, of course. Yeah. Um, but really, other than that, it's just going back to the basics of getting out in the community and going door to door, you know, knocking on the doors and explaining to them the situation and the alerts. Um, obviously, that would take a good bit of personnel to handle that task. So we would be um, depending on all of our partners to help us accomplish that. It would it would truly be a, a citywide effort. But it would, you know, when all else fails, you go back to door to door and pamphlets, flyers, whatever you need to do, because you need to get that message out. Yeah. So I just kind of asked that, how do you... Re- how do you reach the underserved members of the community? Um, and you, you did answer that. Um, and then I think a lot of times, um, and I'm sure you guys are on top of it because you're both very professional, but to make sure that we understand the different languages spoken in our community. So we have different pamphlets mm-hmm. in all the different languages so that people understand um, what is actually going on. So does your city have cert teams like, uh, communities, emergency response teams. Do you guys have those there or? We do. Okay. Can you talk we about actually, them? Yes, we, we have an amazing CERT team. They, they really are outstanding. Um, they come out to assist us at a moment's notice and then really regardless of the task. For example, um, on structure fires, they'll come out and help set up rehab or they'll take our cylinders back to the station and have them filled. And then they'll even bring them back to the scene if we're still there. Um, Or other times they'll fire up the grill and and keep everyone fed if we host an event. Um, They've even come in to help us manually unload that truck, that truck full of water bottles when we didn't have water that week. So really they are, they're truly outstanding and they're willing to help with whatever the task is. We, we love our service. So when they so when a member of your community wants to join the CERT team, is there like a series of classroom sessions and a series of like hands on training or how does one become a member of your CERT team? There's there's an application that they fill out and then they'll just start attending our our trainings. We try to do them about once a month if we can. Um, It gets a little spread out sometimes when we have a lot of other events going on, but we try to meet once a month and then either do just some kind of um, informal education, whether it's PowerPoints or discussion-based or even hands-on. Okay. Because um, where I previously worked, um, we did have CERT teams, and it was a series of classroom training on first aid, um, fire behavior, and such. And then there was a Saturday where they had all hands-on, where they got to use a fire extinguisher and practice shutting off the uh, power and how to do cribbing and shoring and then basic first aid needs. Um, When I worked there, one of the big concerns with the members that were going through it were they weren't really involved because thank God there was never any need for them at a huge emergency scene. Um, But I like how you guys integrate them with other things within your department to keep them active because you go through, I mean, where I worked, you go through all that training and it was, I think four nights of training and then a whole weekend 
whole day and um you know they graduated and got their picture taken and, and such but thank god like i said there was never no any emergency where they were needed um i think some of them kind of like lost interest i know some of them like in, within their community because they like come as a, a neighborhood and a lot of them would come the neighborhood where they live would come together um would kind of create their own little niche so to speak in case there was a huge um disaster but i think by integrating them in other things and they're so active i think that like empowers them and realizes that they really are important and they really are part of your community and i really commend you guys for um doing that so do you feel that um having like training high school kids or maybe even junior high in certain things would be beneficial like like I just mentioned, like the basic first aid or. So I guess. What Absolutely. I. Um, go ahead. Oh, I'll, I'll let you finish your question. <laughs> Sorry, I was just gonna say like, so do we feel that emergency planning should be taught at a school and how do you teach children to prepare without instilling fear? And chief brought it up a little while ago about the active shooters. We know that I think as early as kindergarten now, they're doing active shooting drills. So how do you instill just the basic, and we'll get to the active shooter drill in a minute, but just the basic emergency issues, like, like we've mentioned, turn around, don't drown or and such like that. How do you teach that in, in, to the children and not instill the fear in them? Well, I think it's really important that we do that. I mean, we we go over things like fire drills and tornado drills or earthquake drills with them, even at a young age. Um, so education is important, even when they are very young. Um, but just like with anything else that has the potential to scare them, the, the biggest thing to keep in mind when you're going over this stuff is to just communicate with them on their knowledge level, you know, where their where their understanding is about what you are doing and why. And a lot of times that'll help alleviate some fears. So just being there and and talking with them, I think, will it really helps with that. You know, in addition to that, show show them what's real. You know, get on their level. Let's be transparent with kids, too. Kids are a lot smarter and wiser these days. Uh, we can do these things through different games and activities, mm-hmm. but show them real life scenarios as well. You know, give them something that they can touch and feel. That's true. We do teach the and you want to you hit on it like we teach fire drills and we teach the exit drills in the home and that they should practice them. And we probably send home paperwork with them to make their fire escape plan and how to do the Edith drills and such. Mm-hmm. And Chief made a good point. Get on their own level. Don't try to instill fear, but let them know that there is the possibility that, you know, an emergency such as a fire or something can happen in their own home. Listen, whether it's a fire, a power outage, an earthquake, a flood, a hurricane, tornado, tsunami, wildfire, volcano eruption, <laughs> a medical emergency. You're going through all that. Listen, kids, hey, kids need to be prepared as well. And we just need to get on their levels. We can do different activities, uh, but make it real. I think you're right. And I think I'm and, and not. I think that now we're so attuned, unfortunately, to the active shooter. And every day you turn on the news and there's an active shooter somewhere, it seems like. And a lot of times, unfortunately, it is at schools. Um, So. Do you feel that I don't 
that the fire department should be involved with the active shooter drills at a school or should it just be totally the police or sheriff that's involved since eventually you're going to be responding to these. And I think sometimes we all know that sometimes children take to firefighters more readily than the police, unfortunately. Well, fortunately, but unfortunately. I think everyone should be involved because it's not only for them and their training, but it's also vital for our training because in an event like this, everyone is responding. We are responding. PD will be responding every, you know, so the more that you can train beforehand with your partners, um, the better you will be if should something like that happen. So I definitely think it's important to incorporate both fire and PD whenever possible in these kind of things. And then it also helps um, everyone at school get to know, know who's know your responders, know their faces, know the different uniforms. It's just another level of education that you can add in helping prepare for these kind of events. And we talked about this earlier, but are there resources available to help the underserved communities obtain the necessary supplies to make a 72 hour kit? If, if they're un, if they aren't available to afford some of the things that we mentioned, they should have then the bare necessities, I guess. I personally do not know of the like specific resources available to help. Um, as you mentioned, some of the disaster relief organizations like Red Cross, um, Salvation Army, they they assist the communities and help them, you know, get back to normal. So. There is that option to reach out to them and see what resources they can assist with, or maybe they can at least point you in the direction where you can find that. But speaking of the supplies itself, um, a lot of these things are available. You know, you're talking your local supermarket and even when money or if money is tight, you don't have to go out and buy everything that chief and I said should be in your kit at once, because that can be costly and it can be just overwhelming, especially when you have other things that you're worried about and and trying to buy. So just go out there, you know, say, okay, this week I'm going to just buy some extra batteries. Maybe next week I'll buy some flashlights. Maybe the week after that, I'll get some extra, just a couple extra cans of food. It's all these little things that Eventually, you can, you know, you'll add up and have a pretty good kit there. So you don't don't have to go out and get everything all at once. But anything is better than nothing. So little by little, just do what you can where you're at. And of course, reach out and see what uh, what else is available. You know, in your first 24, 48, 72 hours, you're going to have all these different uh, agencies and volunteer agencies uh, come to the the community's aid, Uh, even your local church organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they have set up food pantries and things of that nature. Sometimes they have uh, extra clothing. Uh, they also allow you to use churches as uh, your shelters. So that's where you'll get some of your immediate needs. Um, if you're talking about building your house in the long run, well, that's the long run plan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we've concentrated a lot so far on the community, but what about the fire stations and the firefighters? After a major event, they'll be taxed with responding to marauding calls. How do we ensure that they have the necessary supplies? I mean, we know we all know fire, fire, fire stations have generators in case of a power is out, but we've seen where a major flooding event has actually flooded a fire station. So how do we ensure that our fire stations and our firefighters are still able to respond in the event of a major disaster?
Chief. So how would we know that, um, so let me repeat the question. We're having a little bit of a problem with the internet here. So how do we ensure that our fire stations and firefighters have the necessary supplies? Because we saw, I think it was actually somewhere in Florida where a fire station actually got flooded and the fire engine was actually flooded and such. So how do we ensure that our fire stations and firefighters are taken care of when we have a major disaster? Well, one of the first things, I mean, you just want to ensure that you've got the necessary supplies. So you want to stay up to date on on what you have, what the department has, um, what you might need more of and, and keeping uh, a good bit of that in your uh, storage and and supply. Um, and then if the responders need something that we don't typically use or carry, then, you know, we would go about getting those items, um, whether that's that resource request sent to our other partners or we would figure it out. But, you know, our, our buildings, like you said, like that happened in Florida, they're, they're subject to disasters just like anyone else's home. So really, um, it's just coming together uh, with each other and with the community and, and doing what we can with the best that we have. So we, um, so far we've concentrated on like having stuff for your home and such. Do we have any kind of emergency kit in our car, like extra water or a blanket in case we get stranded somewhere, so to speak? I think chief does. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know like here, like if someone's going to drive up to, um, the mountains and it's snowy and the roads may be closed or something, even though they're telling you not to drive up there, they say, if you're going to drive, make sure you have a blanket, make sure you have water, make sure you have that. So is that something we all should basically have in our car at all times, at least a blanket? Absolutely. I, I think with, with just with the kids, you know, it can be a much smaller version, but again, it's, it's never bad, a uh, bad idea to have some, some extra water, some snacks that you can keep, whether it's protein bars, a blanket, if needed, just a couple items. Uh, and even you can go as far as having a kit, you know, at work too, and, and your different place, because you never know where something is going to happen. So if the more, um, the more, more kits that you can have in, in different places, of course, the better, but absolutely in your vehicle, especially if you do a lot of traveling on the roads, it's quite important to have because, you know, Atlanta had our, our lovely share of experience where everyone was stuck on the interstate. Well, not everyone, but I was for 12 plus hours. And um, you go through that one time and you learn very quickly. Okay. I need this in my car. Not going to do that again. <laughs> so, yeah. So when I moved to Georgia, the deputy chief, that's the first thing that he shared with me. Might want to get you an emergency kit and put in your car. So in the back of the truck, I have water, I have a towel, I have a blanket, I have a pillow, I have some snacks. I have toiletry. <laughs> Everything that you need in the event that you are stranded. Hmm. And I know, personally speaking, I, I don't hear a lot of, um, at least in the, um, the area in Northern California, where they actually tell you to actually have supplies in your car. It's mostly um, in your home or your place of work. So, I mean, I think that's good that we're talking about having supplies at your place of work, your car and such, because I think sometimes people don't really think that I might get stranded in my car somewhere. 
Right. And, and that goes in, you know, in line with what if you're needing to evacuate and what if, what if the, what if there's congestion and traffic because everyone is going in that same direction. So it's, it's great to have some things in your car. So we, we kind of talked about uh, shelter in place versus evacuations and then um, evacuation routes. And I know a lot of cities have, you know, this is the designated evacuation route and such, but like shelters and such. Um, I know it always it was in where I worked. It was if there was a major wildfire, why weren't the shelters that were going to be open? Pretty, they were predetermined, but why didn't the community know and trying to educate the community on, on why? I don't think the community understands. I mean, we can't say this is going to be a shelter and then that's affected by the emergency. So how do we, yeah, how do we like instill in the community that we do have these shelters in place, but we can't really announce them until the event because the shelter that you might want to go to that is nearest your house might be part of the event that we're trying to get you away from. It just, it goes back to explaining to them um, and, and educating and the thing with shelters is that it it's not an immediate you know we do we get it set up as quick as we can but it you don't want to tell them that it's going to be in a building like you mentioned and then that building is affected so prior to announcing a location you want to make sure that you have the location and that everything is set up and ready to go. And then you, you explain to them, you know, where to go and how to get there, but they need to know that up front so that you manage their expectations of if we need a shelter, this is how um, the city or the community will, will go about, you know, getting there. And so just getting up front with them and telling them, you know, this is the plan, but just look out and listen for instructions on where to go when the time is needed. But not so much, you know, a, a location itself until until that location is deemed appropriate. I, th- I think that was the biggest hurdle was they certain communities wanted to know exactly where they were going to be evacuated to and trying to explain to them. We we have them designated, but we if we tell you to go there and that's part of the emergency now, that's going to create kind of sense of bigger emergency because you're going somewhere where you're not supposed to be going that's putting yourself in danger that now you may need to be rescued. Right. And then you don't want to, you know, have all these places listed and then the community or has have anyone self-dispatch essentially to that location before it's even a shelter, you know, and then now they're stranded and no one's there. And so it's a lot of things. There's a reason there's a method to the madness, as we say, of, of why we do certain things and go in a certain order. And that just goes back to educating the community on on why we do certain things the way we do them. And I, I think we keep harping on the um, the key is educating our community and letting our community know what resources are available and what actually to do in the event of emergency. And the, so the firefighters, I know they go out in the community. I know your, your department's very active in the community. It's a community-based fire department. So do your fire state the stations, do the firefighters actually go out and talk to people about having emergency plans or such, or is it something that's mostly just on the emergency manager? I'm sorry, go ahead, Iwana. No, go go ahead, Chief. It's a combination of both. You know, we, we try to practice anytime we respond to an emergency, that's their time that you're 
educating the community on any type of emergency, even if it's the emergency that we're responding to. Uh, so that is the first connection with the community as far as education. Um, in addition to that, uh, anytime that we're going to uh, speak with kids at school, we're educating them on emergencies. So those are the f- initial first steps in preparation and getting the community pr- prepared uh, for any event that may happen in your community. EMA? Any opportunity that you get to engage with a citizen or with the community members, uh, you know, we I think we do a good job of, of taking that and and we speak with them and take our time and, and listen to their questions because they'll have different questions. Everyone has, you know, different thoughts on things and or some might know more about what we do than others. So especially when a city when the city has an event, you know, we'll be out there and just let them let them come up or we come, you know, just exchanging in that dialogue as often as you can. And whenever you have the opportunity, I think that's that's great. And I, I think we do a really good job at that. And I agree. I've seen some of your posts on um, social media where you're very active in the community at, at different events and such. So this may be a little bit off topic, but we we hear about fire prevention month and we instill in, in our community the importance of fire prevention and such. So when we're instilling the the fire prevention month, I think we're probably instilling everything that we've talked about, but we're still just calling it fire prevention month. Does that make sense? We're still telling them about, you know, how important it is to how to prevent fires and stuff. But a lot of the things we've talked about so far today is what to kind of do in an emergency, but some of it actually piggybacks on how to prevent becoming a part, a bigger part of the emergency, so to speak, like with the generators and such. So mm-hmm. when, when you're active in fire prevention month, are we actually at the same time preach or teaching about fire prevention and emergency management at the same time or how to prepare for emergency? If that makes sense. I believe we are because it's a great opportunity to do both. And and like you said, one uh, could lead to the other and eventually it does lead to the other. You're talking about how to prevent uh, a fire or how to alert the family with your smoke alarms or smoke detectors or carbon carbon monoxide poisoning. You know, if you have generators, the importance of proper use. So all these things kind of go in line and then when you further the public education portion to maybe let's say how we use fire extinguishers, you know, that's all technically tied back into fire prevention. Um, But that's it, you know, it it all, I think it all ties in to one big thing. I agree. Okay. So today we've talked about emergency planning and I think the keys are to um, have a plan, make a plan. Your family may not, be together in a disaster strike. So it's important to know which types of disasters could affect your area. Know how you'll contract, contact one another and reconnect if separated. So have a meeting plan, establish a a family meeting place. Um, So put the plan together by discussing the emergency alert system so that everybody actually knows what your emergency alert system is. Um, where, what's the evacuation route? Like I mentioned, a lot of cities where they have hurricanes and such have the signs out that say this is the evacuation um, plan. And then have a you need to have a communication plan for your family or household. And how do you we talked about how to update your emergency preparedness. So um, I think that we need once we're the, we've put these in place. 
how often should we be practicing our plan with our family and household? Should we, it should be a monthly thing, a quarterly thing where we're making sure that everybody understands what the emergency alert tones are, um, where we're going to meet after the event, if we're, we are separated or we're not at the same location when something happens. I would definitely say uh, quarterly and anytime any event happens, I would say anytime, even prior to and after it post the event so that you are, um, you know, still abreast and have the knowledge base of, of if there's any changes that have taken place uh, during that plan. So I would say quarterly, but most certainly uh, pre and post event, because if you know the event is coming, uh, you have a t- you have a, a short span in that preparation to see if your plan is still effective. And I would add to that, too, um, as far as, as when you do, you know, look at your neighboring communities, what is, did something happen nearby? And then use that as an example with with your family and with the plan. Like maybe that wasn't part of the plan in the first place, but that happened a few you know counties away. It's like, hey, what would we do in this? Because this is new. So any chance that you receive new information or new education, that's definitely a time to go back to your plan and look over it and discuss it with everyone and, and revise as needed. And so, I mean, we've discussed today, we all, we can't obviously know when some of these emergencies are going to happen. So the best emergency planning should probably aim where possible to prevent emergencies from occurring, like we discussed fires and such, and people driving in flooded water could probably be prevented. And where, and when they do a good, do occur, good planning should reduce control or mitigate the effects of the emergency. And you mentioned um, you wanted some um, resources that were available, but um, FEMA.gov has actually planning guides and ready.gov has planning guides that will help communities um, plan for emergencies that they they do. And then in multiple languages as well. And that's important. I mean, I think sometimes, um, unfortunately we forget how diverse some of our communities are and that, you know, it's just not two languages that are spoken in some communities. It's, a maraud of different um, languages that are spoken. So does anyone have anything they'd like to add to our emergency planning? I mean, we've covered a lot of great information on how to help communities prepare. We've talked about, you know, different types of emergencies, some that are planned, some are not planned. The importance of having, you know, three days sustainable for three days because it might, the fire department might not be accessible or any kind of emergency response for 72 hours. Um, where you should have the kits, not only at home, but your place of work, your car and such, um, how to obtain them. So I would, just like, I would just like to close by saying uh, preparation is key. Uh, understanding the risk in your community, uh, contacting your local public safety uh, uh, personnel, your fire departments, your police department. You know, reach out to those t- agencies to request uh, additional training and education. Um, just knowing your risk, knowing your community's risk, knowing your your county's risk, which ultimately affects your community's risk. Uh, education is key. It is. And I would say at any point, you know, if you have questions, if you want more information, reach out. You know, we're, we're never 
uh, far away and, and we're more than happy to, to come out and, and answer any questions and, and train if, if available and just reach out anytime. That doesn't have to be a structured uh, planned event for, for the community to engage with us if they have specific questions that they want us to look into. And I, and I think that today we've dis- we've discussed the interconnection between the emergency planning and the fire department. They're not two separate entities. They need to work hand in hand for um, an event of an emergency to be successful. And I think oftentimes we forget how important an emergency planner, emergency management is within the fire service. And you want, I want to thank you for being an emergency um, management coordinator because it is a very important role in the fire service to make sure that our communities are prepared for an emergency. And if an emergency does happen, you're going to be the first one there making sure that everything is um, being handled properly with the fire department, that the resources are being allotted correctly and to the right um, entities and such. So I really want to thank all um, you and any other emergency management coordinator or anyone else that works in emergency management that might be listening to our show that we do understand you are a part of the fire service and we do appreciate you and thank you. Thank you, Chief. So I want to thank each guest for being a part of the radio show. I was very honored to have um, two very knowledgeable individuals speaking about emergency planning. Um, Thank you to Fire Engineering again. Thanks to all our listeners and members of Women in Fire. And you can follow Women in Fire on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And check out our website of womeninfire.org. And thank you for listening.